You are listening to the Financial Clarity for Doctors podcast by Finity Group, LLC, where we discuss the pertinent financial planning topics facing physicians and other medical professionals. Discussions in this show should not be construed as specific recommendations or investment advice. Always consult with your investment professional before making important investment decisions. Securities offered through Cambridge Investment Research, Inc., a registered broker-dealer, member FINRA SIPC. And now, here are your hosts, Rochelle Vanderzanden and Corey Janoff. Welcome back, everyone, to Financial Clarity for Doctors. This is Rochelle Vanderzanden here with Corey Janoff. Hey, yo. <laughs> and today, we are going to chat a little bit about common financial planning mistakes, Um, I do think sometimes that people overestimate how badly they might mess up their financial planning. It's very possible to make some pretty serious mistakes. But most of the time, if you're paying attention and if you're putting your resources toward your goals, then it's likely that you're making some good progress. Like the fact that you're even listening to this podcast means that you're paying attention and you're trying. And those are probably two of the most important things. Um, That being said, there are some common mistakes that we see clients and listeners make. So we just wanted to to walk through a few common pitfalls that it it can be easy to avoid if you just know a little bit more about it. Um, So we're just going to walk through a few. And if you guys have any to add to the list, you're always welcome to email us and chime in. We are at info at, wait, no, podcast at thefinitygroup.com if anyone ever wants to email us. But we always like to hear from you guys. Or find us on social. We're not super active, but if you tweet at me, I'll respond. We can start a little mm-hmm. Twitter chain <laughs> of, of silly mistakes that people sometimes make with their money. Absolutely. That sounds like a, a goal after this is published. Well, tell us about your first one, Corey. Let's see. I don't know how many we actually, we didn't number them. But so, you know, the first one we have on here is debt avoidance at all costs. And I don't know if, you know, if this is super common, but I think some people are paralyzed by the idea of owning debt and it just despises them, disgusts them, and they, they, they can't stand it, can't sleep with it. They want to get rid of it as soon as possible. And they just, you know, attack debt and don't put money towards other things. And, and that can have some long-term uh, detrimental consequences for you. You know, and not all debt is, is necessarily bad. You know, for example, most of you listening to this had to take out student loans to get through med school, and you wouldn't be listening to us if you didn't have those student loans. You wouldn't be a doctor. And, uh, you know, your student loans are a great investment um, in most cases, an investment in yourself and your in your career, your future success. So, you know, yes, they're large. Yes, they'll take a little while to pay off. But long term, you're probably in a better spot because of them. Same logic goes along the lines with with business loans or practice loans. You want to buy into a practice as a partner or start your own. Um, you know, it's, it's getting tougher and tougher to succeed in, in private practice these days, but for certain specialties, it's still, um, you know, pretty prominent. And if it's well thought out, well planned, the numbers work out right, that, then yes, it's an investment in you, your career, your future success. Um, mortgages, another good one, especially with how low interest rates are. You know, historically, we're about the lowest point ever, and uh, it means you can borrow money at a low cost and therefore do other things with with the rest of your money. Ideally, those other things are productive, like saving for retirement or kids' college or putting Mm -hmm. towards higher interest rate debts. 
Um, but you know, long term, you're probably better off taking out a mortgage and and doing productive things with the rest of your money than trying to stockpile cash at zero percent interest, losing out to inflation, so you can pay cash for that house one day in the future. I mean, if that's what you had to do to buy a house, if you wanted to avoid a mortgage, like you'd be setting your retirement back by decades. Um, you know, without if you decide not to put any money towards retirement until you saved up and paid cash for a house. So I think mortgages can be. Um, you know, a good tool if we're smart about them. Right, Rochelle? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that that's probably going to be a common theme today is just making smart decisions and looking at all the options you have available to you and making good choices. With, I think one thing I've seen come up with student loans is, you know, sometimes even when people work for a qualifying employer and they could potentially be working towards public service loan forgiveness and they just, they, they hate their loans so much that they want to pay them off anyway. And you know, if I'm looking at someone and they are five years into making payments, they already have five years of qualifying payments. Really, you have five more years that you have to make these minimum payments and then have the bulk of your loans forgiven. And chances are, you know, it's a couple hundred grand or something like that. Like that's that's free money. Like that's free money. And, and I hate to see people give things like that up just because they want to feel like they're taking control of it themselves and they want to feel like they're they're being more aggressive about it and they want it to be gone in three years instead of five or something like that. Um, but there's so many other things that you could be doing with that same money, with those same dollars. And it, it is about making those good choices. Like ideally we're not, you know, using that excess money and, and spending it on like fancy cars and stuff like that. Like if you, if you have enough money to do everything, then why not? But, you know, we're hopefully making some good choices with the the excess money that or excess cash flow we might generate from not being quite so aggressive with our debt. Yes. And back to the the mortgage and you know tying into home buying. Um I think probably the biggest mistake in my opinion that we see um or at least one of the top ones is is buying too much house or more house than you can afford. Um will afford and still be able to reach all your financial goals. A a mortgage bank will approve you for way more house than you should buy. Um, You know, aside from taxes and maybe your children, your house will be your largest expense throughout your life. And, you know, the, the, therefore the less we spend on housing, our biggest expense, the more flexibility we'll have to put money towards other areas of our financial world, um, whether that's retirement, college for the kids, other debts, you know, paying off the student loans faster if we can't qualify for PSLF or PSLF doesn't make sense. Or shoot, the more fun you can have, you know, we spend less on housing, we can go on nicer vacations, go out to nicer dinners, um, you know, etc. And, uh, you know, I've written some some blog posts about this, and we I think we may have done a podcast too. I'd have to go back and look. But, you know, at best with your house, you're probably going to break even on it. It's not a very good investment. Anyone who says their primary residence is an investment is, is, is kidding themselves. If you add up all the costs, the mortgage interest, the property taxes, the transaction costs, you pay a real estate agent 6% to sell, you pay all the title fees and closing fees, appraisal fees, everything, you know, and you try and get into a house, there's a bunch of fees, getting approved for a mortgage, you got to make repairs, people want to make upgrades from time to time. If you really add up all the money you spend on your house over time, when you go to sell it, you're probably getting back what you put in, and that's in a good scenario. Um, you know, so that's not a very good investment if your your rate of return is effectively zero percent over time. 
better than renting where you're going to get a negative rate of return because you're not seeing any of that money back but you know it's 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 more of like a forced savings vehicle than an investment as a primary house so therefore try and you know minimize that that home um you know you can buy us buy a decent house that, that works for you but but we don't um you know need to get caught up in keeping up with the joneses or buying the fancy doctor house um, yeah, ideally we try and keep our initial mortgage balance below two times our income, which in some markets will be very challenging to do, but it's just a math equation. Um, you know, if you have student loans, if you have kids, if you're not starting your retirement savings until you're in your thirties, you know, we, we've got a lot of obligations and, and financial objectives with a limited amount of resources. Therefore, the less we, we spend on housing, the more flexibility we'll have with other things and that two times your income rule of thumb is a good starting point for the mortgage balance that's not the home price but the mortgage and you know depending on circumstances it could be more or less um you know i think last thought on this one i believe uh i think it was morgan housel um, i'm sure some other people have said similar things but i'm paraphrasing here but uh basically the best way to assure that you'll be miserable is to let your expectations rise faster than your income. So, you know, once you get into practice, you want to upgrade the house, lifestyle creep is a thing, you got to upgrade everything else, get a nicer car, nicer clothes, nicer food, nicer vacations. So, if your expectations of what your life should be are growing faster than your income, it's going to be tough to to keep up with your with your desires. Mm-hmm. And I do feel like sometimes that lifestyle creep happens even before the income increases. <laughs> I've had a lot of clients who are like, oh, I'm getting my first attending job. And before they even start seeing paychecks, they're spending the money they haven't even made quite yet. Um, and that can be really hard to recover from because one other big mistake that we often see is people not prioritizing saving for retirement early enough. You know, it's like, I want to buy a house, I want to buy a new car, I want to do all of these things, and like retirement savings takes a backseat. It, it's something that we can always think about later because we're not retiring tomorrow. Um, so maybe, you know, we're not saying that very first paycheck, it should all go into retirement or anything like that, but maybe you have fun, and then after that, you get to the point where your retirement is happening right away. You know, like we're second paycheck, we're starting to save. We're putting money in our 401k. We're putting money in our 403b. We're trying to save at least 20% of our income. 25% if you're starting even later, like if you've gone through extended periods of time and training and stuff like that. Um, and, and it will grow. You know, the more time that money has to grow, the better off you are. So that compounding interest is really powerful, especially if you can start at a younger age. Um, and I think one other thing, just taking one step back, we already talked about this a little bit, but the bank that's giving you your mortgage, they don't care if you're saving for retirement. They don't care if you can go on vacation. They only care that you can make your mortgage payment. So that that's where their calculations come from. But you're trying to plan for other things, like making sure you're saving enough for retirement early enough. For sure. You know, just to throw some some numbers at you for a fun example, um, if you start investing a thousand a month at age thirty, it should grow to about one and a half million by the time you're sixty. Could be more, could be less, depending on what the stock market returns for you. If you wait until you're forty to start saving that thousand a month, it's only going to grow to around six hundred thousand, give or take. 
Um, if you want to get to the 1.5 million amount and you're starting at 40, you'll need to invest 2,500 per month to get there. So just waiting a decade means you're going to have to save two and a half times as much on an ongoing basis in order to get to the same end goal. Um, so the sooner you can start saving and investing, even if it's not that full 20%, you know, just any little bit adds up over time and then try and baby step your way. But it's just basic math. If you're starting in your early 30s, save at least 20% of your income for retirement, and that should put you on a good track to retire by your late 50s, early 60s. If you're starting in your late 30s, probably need to save at least 25% of your income to retire at that quote unquote reasonable age, you know, the normal retirement, early 60s. I think the average American retires at age 62. So if you want to be on track to retire by then, at least 20 to 25% of your income is what it's going to take to get there. Yeah. And if you can't afford to save like $1,000 per month now, what are the chances that in 10 years you can do $2,500 a month? Like it's oh, yeah. Just... For, for most of you, 1000 <laughs> is, I mean, you need to save way more than that. You know, if you're making three hundred grand, 20% of it's 60000 a year. That's 5000 a month. So um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And if your life, yeah, if your lifestyle is at that point now, it, it yeah, it's just it's just gonna get better lifestyle wise. That's what you anticipate. That's what you hope. It's really hard to try to make changes in the opposite direction and, and play catch up. Yeah, I do also think one other thing that people do, and this is relates back to retirement savings and savings early, is that often we see clients so focused on like their student loan debt and the burden that that has placed on them, and they just don't want that for their kids, which makes sense. But sometimes we see clients prioritizing college savings over retirement planning. Like we're not even close to hitting our retirement goals yet. We don't even know what our retirement goals are. We do know that we want to put a boatload into college savings so that our kids can go to school and they don't have to worry about student loans like we did. Um, But, you know, there's no loan option for retirement. (laughs) You know, like, even if your kids do have to take out loans for schools, like, you're figuring it out. It, it will be okay. You know, you're making a, a decent income and you're paying back your student loans if you do have them. And it doesn't mean that you shouldn't be doing college savings at all. It just means that in the grand scheme of things, it probably makes sense to make sure that you have an appropriate plan in place for your retirement before you are going crazy with the college savings. So it's just a matter of like lining things up, seeing what the numbers look like, what you need to be doing and approaching it in a, a well thought out way. Yeah, it's finding that balance. Like, I can totally support saying, you know, I'd gladly work until I'm 65 if it means I can pay for my kid's college versus being able to retire by 55. You know, that's totally fine. But if it's like, we don't have any shot of retiring at all, you know, but we're saving for college, okay, maybe we should reassess some things. There's more than one option for getting education paid for um, where there's really only one option for retirement and that's do the bulk of the savings yourself so yeah absolutely i think that some people think you know oh we're gonna have social security and i mean i think people are relying on that less now but don't overestimate the value of social security for you 30 years from now like it's not gonna look for young folks like it does for the people who are retired now and also as a high income earner like social security will just be a very small portion of your overall retirement income 
It's just, it's going to be, you know, a couple drops in the bucket. It's not going to be very much. Yeah. Another one we see is being underinsured or uninsured. Um, Not a fun topic, but important. You know, there's certain insurances you need. There's a lot of insurances you don't need. A really simple question to ask yourself is if this event happens, could it potentially ruin me or my family? If the answer is yes, it could ruin you, then we should probably buy the insurance to protect against that event. Um, no one wants to pay for it. No one likes paying for it. Uh, but, you know, it's it's an important risk management tool. You know, disability insurance we've talked about, big one for doctors. You know, if your income shuts off, would that be a problem? If the answer is yes, you need adequate disability insurance and not just the cheapdisability.com plan. Get like a good specialty-specific own occupation plan that's going to cost a significant amount, you know, probably at least a few thousand a year to protect an attending level income, if not, you know, closer to 10,000 a year or more if you're making a higher income. Um, but worth it, you know, if you're making 600,000, you know, spending 10 grand a year on a disability policy, it's like, all right, I can make 600,000, but if I can't work anymore, I'm done. Or I can make 590,000, and if I can't work anymore, I'm still making 590 until I'm retired. All right, you know, sounds, uh, Sounds like a pretty attractive proposition. Sounds decent. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I do also see sometimes like residents really hesitant to get disability insurance because, you know, like the cash flow is not great as a resident a lot of times. And they think, you know, I've got some group coverage at least. It kind of protects what I'm making right now. But the truth is, as a resident, like we are not building a financial plan for residents based on their current salary. It's not like, hey, you're going to make $60,000 forever. That's not what we're doing, especially if people have really big student loan burdens and things like that. Like we are planning on you making more money in the future. And so getting some additional coverage is really important, if at all possible, Um, and just making sure you have more protection than you do through work and also making sure you have some stronger protection than you do through work. For sure. Life insurance, most people don't have enough of it. I mean, just start doing the math on the back of a napkin. If you passed away, you have kids in the picture, what's it going to cost for a single parent that's left or to have, you know, childcare, send the kids to school, put food on the table, pay the mortgage, um, you know, pay off other debts. Put them debts. through college. <laughs> yeah. It's, you know, get through, have enough for retirement. I mean, it, it adds up pretty quickly. Um Another one that people often overlook is is increasing your home insurance as your home value goes up. You know, periodically review that and bump up your home insurance limits. Umbrella liability is probably the cheapest form of asset protection you can buy. You get it through your home and auto insurance company. Um, just say the word umbrella. They'll know what you're talking about, and you typically buy it in million-dollar chunks, but that is designed to protect you, and most likely in the event of a lawsuit, if someone sues you because they got injured on your property or you got in a car accident and you were at fault and then they sue you for it, that umbrella policy will come in handy. Um, And then on the car insurance side, maximize your uh, uninsured motorist liability coverage. So if you're in an accident with someone who doesn't have insurance, you'll be protected and can get reimbursed appropriately for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No one likes to pay for insurances, like we said at the beginning. And, you know, if we could, we'd pay for it the day before we needed it, but then no one would sell insurance. You know, it's just... <laughs> I I think one other thing just to touch on quickly is you can also be overinsured. You know, like 
you can be that person that buys the warranty for every piece of electronics you buy. And if you make, you know, a good chunk of money, you can afford to replace your TV if it breaks. You don't need insurance for that. So there, there's other ones that you can skip as well. Just try to say like, hey, if I could pay for this again, if I needed to do something out of my pocket, would it be okay? And if so, like don't buy that insurance. You don't need it. Yeah. I, I do also think another one that sometimes comes up is that there are things that people treat like investments that really aren't investments, like timeshares is a classic one. And I think it's partially because it, it's sold almost like an, it's investment, like it's an investment, like, oh, this is worth this amount of money, but we'll sell it to you for this amount of money, blah, 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 blah. Um, that's not what it is. <laughs> Or like vacation homes, you know, people are like real estate. Yeah, this is a, a you know an investment because it's a it's real estate, right? But if a vacation home is one that you just pump money into and you go visit, you know, a couple times a month and you never make any money on it, it's not an investment either. Like you're not you're not making money. Like that's how an investment works. Is that hopefully you're you're earning something on it. Um, and if the, the value might be increasing on a vacation home, but still, you're probably pumping more money into it than the, the actual value increase itself. There's lots of other ones. I think like expensive primary residence, like Corey was saying, like your primary residence is not really an investment. It's a place for you to live. It's a way for you to mitigate some of your long-term costs probably because, you know, it's not like rent where you're losing money, but you're probably not gaining a whole lot of money either. And it, I think that one important thing to come back to is that this doesn't mean that you shouldn't do any of these things. It's just about approaching them and making sure that, you know, we're, we're doing the things that we need to be doing with our money first before we're doing fun things or extra things, you know, vacation homes, timeshares, that can be all well and good, but you know, hopefully we're on track for retirement savings. We have our other long-term goals kind of lined up. Um, you can also put more money towards low interest rate debt if you're maxing out your retirement savings and, it's just, it's a matter of making sure that your priorities are lined up correctly. I'll offend some people here, but investing in cryptos or NFTs as part of like your overall investment strategy. I'm all for throwing some money in with, with the play account. A lot of people have made a, a ton of money off of some of these cryptos the last couple of years, but that's probably more due to luck than a, a sound investment thesis so i think you know if, if you want to dabble in it with the play money totally fine um but but let's not make it part of our overall retirement strategy because um, there's a good chance it could go to zero um there's no inherent value in a non-fungible token um <laughs> i always forget what that even stands for thank you Corey. <laughs> yeah it's, it's like investing in baseball cards i mean it's cool but there's not really any it's just a piece of paper with a picture of an old guy on it. Um, yeah, it's all about supply guy. and demand. So if demand goes down, you know, like, yeah. Maybe I'm old yeah. school, but I consider an investment something that generates cash flows. And, you know, maybe that's me, you know, being a finance major in college. But in order to, like, value an investment, it has to have some cash flows that you can discount by an interest rate into the future and, you know, determine what's an appropriate value for it today. Um, like, if it doesn't have any revenue, it's, it's like, it's, it's not inherently worth any more than the rock that's sitting in your backyard. You know, maybe one day people will find that piece of limestone to be worth a, a ton of money because um, it has, like, a... Uh, image of a T-Rex on it that looks like it. <laughs> so, 
um, or what, like the pancakes that have like Jesus's face on them, it looks like, and now they're, they're worth a ton of money. Like, I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's only worth what someone's willing to pay for it. And if the demand goes down, um, it's, it's worthless. It doesn't, again, cause it doesn't create any revenue. Yeah. Um, there's some other investing things and we kind of grouped them together, but we just did an entire episode on timing the market. And I think that can be a, a big mistake that people sometimes make is just trying to do that. And like, you know, you overestimate your own abilities sometimes with those sorts of things. So um, long story short on that one, if you want to listen to the whole episode, go for it. But it, it's really difficult to do and nobody can do it with consistent accuracy. Like even people that are paid to do those sorts of things don't do it with consistent accuracy. So in general, it makes more sense to put money in early, stay invested long term, and don't do anything crazy with like putting money in, putting money out, and trying to do special timing things. Um, it's really about like how much can your investments grow over time, and if you put your money in earlier, they can generally grow more. So that's the goal. Yeah, time in the market is statistically more important than deliver, timing the market yeah yeah greater returns than trying to get in or out at the right time just set it and forget it i like this next one a lot so this is one of my biggest pet peeves sometimes is like seeing people like play around with stock buying in their roth iras you know like let's not do the individual stock purchases in your retirement plans because Again, like sometimes you may be successful, you may get very, very lucky, but long term, that's not usually what happens. And if we think about individual retail investors and other people that are buying individual stocks, the other people are like investment banks, mutual fund managers, like all of these people who have so much more in resources and time than you do, and that's your competition with individual stock buying. So if you want to mess around with individual stock buying, I think that's fine. It's very similar to like gambling again, where you're just kind of playing and that probably should be with extra money. In your retirement plan, it makes so much more sense to just take a pretty vanilla strategy. Like we want to be aggressive and do stock-based investing, but ideally with mutual funds that are very broadly diversified. You know, that that is the goal and that is a better way to give yourself a, a long-term chance of success than buying individual stocks. So that's just the money that we want to be safest with because it has so many tax advantages, especially in those Roth accounts. Like all of that money, like all of those gains, you don't have to pay taxes on. So ideally, we we take the most, the most conservative, aggressive <laughs> approach where we're using aggressive mutual funds but not doing anything too crazy. Does that make sense? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Keep it... Keep plain vanilla, diversified, traditional investments, and don't try and outsmart the rest of the market with your stock picking aptitude. Um, and then I think the opposite is is not investing money earmarked for retirement. Cash is guaranteed to lose out to inflation over time. So if you're sitting in cash, you're you're raising your hand and saying, "I want to have less money tomorrow than today." So just put the money in. Odds are it's going to go up in value over time, especially the longer time period you look at. I don't think there's throughout history ever been a period greater than 20 years where the market was negative. And if you include dividend reinvestments, it's even shorter. Um, 
you know, there, there's three to one odds that the stock market's going to be higher a year from now than it is today. So just get your money invested. You're just playing the odds. Statistically speaking, you're going to have a greater value tomorrow than today. Um, so just just give it time to let it do its thing. If it's earmarked for retirement, you don't need the money anytime soon for most of the listeners of this podcast. There's some of you that are in retirement. And for those of you, you know, keep the money you need in the near future in cash. But if you're in your 60s and you plan to live into your 90s, we still need some money earmarked for that 30 plus years down the road and, and just let leave that be in its investment and then hopefully it'll grow over time. And, uh, you know, if it doesn't grow over time, we probably have bigger things to worry about. So, yeah, yeah. When I see this mistake, I think most frequently it's not on purpose. It's on accident. So, you know, if you've set up your own Roth IRA with Fidelity or Vanguard or wherever you set it up, um, unless there's someone managing that account for you, you have to pick an investment. You have to put it in something. Putting money inside of the account does not automatically invest it, except usually that happens with like your 401k or your 403b. That's an exception. When you put money in those accounts, if you don't pick something, they're probably going to pick something for you. But anything that you set up outside of that, if you don't have someone helping you with it, you need to invest it. Um, and so if you have set up accounts and you've put money in them, it's worth checking. Like if you don't remember what you picked or you're just not sure, like go back and look at it. If it says anything like federal money market or cash reserves or, you know, it shows something with like a 0.01% gain and it's very close to the $6,000 you originally put in, those are all good signs that your money's not actually invested. Yes, good point. And then lastly, just impatience, um, or if we were to put a positive spin on it, just be patient. Be patient. Good things will come with time. Time is the magic ingredient uh, for investing, for financial planning. Um, you know, For those of you who like barbecue, you can't make a good brisket or pulled pork without adequate time. You just got to you know, give it time to, to work. And you know, with the investing, the longer you have, the, the more it can compound and grow. You know, over time, your income will hopefully grow. You know, if, if you can't buy the dream house right away, just, just give it some time. Wait, you know, you, it'll eventually, you'll eventually get there if you work hard. Save up, give it some time. Um, you know, be patient and, uh, and yeah, don't, don't try and, you know, rush things. So, you know, you can definitely, you know, work harder to try and accelerate things, but, um, you know, we got to be somewhat realistic with it, and, and you'll be impressed over time with how how much things can grow and compound. And when you look at the progress you make between chipping away at debts from the start of your career, slowly building up your retirement savings, letting the investments compound, you'll be impressed with how much your net worth can grow over periods of time. It's not going to happen overnight, but when you look back 10, 20, 30 years from now, you'll be amazed with, with how far you've you've progressed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you guys have got this. You're listening. That's important. <laughs> I think long story short, if you're doing good things with your money, you're probably fine. <laughs> yeah, the don't fret too much about the little mistakes. We all make little errors and mistakes. It's you know just trying to avoid the big ones. And um, I think as long as you're making the effort, you're on the right track. I think we did an episode. Uh, 
few weeks back or whenever it was that I think it was based around a tweet we saw, but you know, if you're saving, what was it? If you're saving 50% of your income, you can make every mistake in the book and still fall ass backwards into retirement. Um, <laughs> like, you know, as long as you're making the effort and, and, and trying to do the right things, it, it's all going to work out for you. Yeah. Thank you for listening again, everyone. Have a good one. We would love to hear your feedback and suggestions for future topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing podcast at thefinitygroup.com or by following Finity Group on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube at Finity Group LLC. You can follow me on Twitter at Corey Janoff CFP, Instagram at Corey Janoff, or on LinkedIn under my name, Corey Janoff. You can follow me on Twitter at Rochelle Finance or on Instagram, Vanderzanden Rochelle, or on LinkedIn under my name, Rochelle Vanderzanden. Check out all of the podcast episodes on thefinitygroup.com slash podcast on our Finity Group YouTube channel or your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to check out our Financial Clarity blog at thefinitygroup.com slash blog. Thanks for listening to this episode of Financial Clarity for Doctors by Finity Group, LLC.